Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Yes, it's Thursday and we're back. How are you? Everything okay? No? A bit rocky. You veered off road a bit. Well, you know, it's January and these things happen. Just pick yourself back up and uh, don't give yourself too much of a hard time. And just remember, February is right around the corner. And that can only be a good thing, right? Well, it's very cold. I was freezing yesterday. I thought it was Baltic. I thought it was going to snow. Uh, enough. You're not here for um, a weather report from me, are you? You're here for season nine, episode 10. Just keep saying it. We'll get used to it eventually. And we're halfway through season nine. And we are wrapping up for now our uh, food trilogy uh, with another chef. We now, if you support us on Patreon, you you might have known we've been doing these little. They're a bit like Instagram stories uh, for our lovely people who support us on Patreon. And you may have seen uh, a lens video the other day with myself and Griff, and we were in Yorkshire, and uh, we were in an industrial estate. It, it wasn't glamorous, but we were there to. Uh, talk to uh, Chef Alad Williams. I first discovered Alad when he was representing Wales on the Great British Menu, which for those outside the UK is uh, one uh, of the many, many food shows. Um, and it's really exciting. Uh, you discover new talent, new chefs, new dishes. It's a joy. I love that program. And I've kind of been a big fan of Alad. And then last year, or was it the year before? Jeez, I don't know. If I, I'm definitely, I've missed a year. Um, I read a review for, I mean, I don't want to call it a restaurant because it kind of, is and it isn't. It's more like a test kitchen, I suppose. Uh, and it only serves like 10 people. It's very small, a little bit like um, what last week's guest, Eddie Shepard, does, cooks for a small amount of people, except this obviously wasn't in his home. It's in uh, 
a business park in Yorkshire. And it was an amazing review, I thought. And then I read who was heading it up, and it was Alan Williams. So uh, I went along and had some of the most incredible food I've had. It was a special occasion. And, uh, yeah, it, it was an absolute feast. And anyway, we got talking. He was a big fan of the podcast. And I said, well, we should sit down and have a chat. So eventually we did it. Um, and this is all about, uh, ambition and time and plans and striving. You know, Alad is determined. He's almost like uh, a sportsman. He's like an athlete. Um, and we talk about the grueling hours, you know, what it takes to be a chef. Um, I mean, my God, it's hard work. But he, he has, he's taking his foot off the gas now, uh, which you'll hear. Uh, and we'll get to that in a second. What else have I got to tell you? Now, somebody uh, hit me up on social media the other day with regards to Vicky's new show, Trigger Point, which is on ITV. It's on the ITV hub, Get Watching. Um asking me uh, why I wasn't doing a uh, a Trigger Point sort of recap podcast for ITV. And the simple answer is, I haven't been asked. ITV didn't ask me. Now, had they have asked me, um, I don't know whether I would have been able to do it, just because it takes a lot of time and a lot of prep. Um, and, yeah, it's just too much. But if you want a Trigger Point podcast, let me point you in the direction of the lovely guys at the Shrine of Duty podcast. They did a recap on all of of Duty. They did Vigil, because Martin was in it, and now they're doing Trigger Point, um, Vicky's show. So head on over there if you want a Trigger Point recap podcast, because it's dead good and they're great. Um, another podcast recommendation. Now, we all need a laugh. We do. We really do. Now more than ever. If you know Peter Bainham, then you'll know that he's been behind some of the greatest comedy shows and films in the last 20 years. And if you're a fan of Chris Morris, The Day-to-Day, Jam, uh, Blue Jam, which it was on the radio, I think, when... uh, Did it come to TV and it was Jam? Anyway... If you like that style of humour, it's kind of dark, it's twisted, it's a bit silly, it's funny. There is a podcast that Peter Bainham does, and it's called Brain Cigar. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, It's very, very funny, very surreal. Get your ears around Brain Cigar. But before you do that, let's head over to Yorkshire and have a chat with Chef Alad Williams for Season 9, Episode 10. And I start off by asking him something that, you know, we all need to know the answer to this. What's the best way to roast a chicken? Enjoy, and I shall see you at the end. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Got your happy price, price line. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. That's me just sipping my tea there, Alan, because <laughs> it's a cold day uh, and we're in Yorkshire. Now, inevitably, of a weekend, there's two things in it that I have to fit in of a weekend when it's crazy. And one is getting the papers, which inevitably inspires me to go into the kitchen because there's always recipes in there and everybody's always got these new hot takes, especially about a Sunday roast dinner. And I'm always on the lookout. It's a bit like the Holy Grail, the elusive roast chicken. Everybody always has their idea of what their best roast chicken is. And the only reason that people are listening today is they want to know your roast chicken. Give me your hot take of roast chicken, Alid, because I need a professional's opinion so I can lay this to rest. Obviously, it's it's buying you know, the best chicken you can get your hands on as well. You know, yeah. you don't have to go crazy, but I think it's getting a, a well treated, well looked after chicken uh, that you can source from your butchers. Because at the end of the day, you know, you can only get a really good chicken from a good chicken. So. Classically, if I'm in a restaurant, you might brine it. So what I mean by that is um, for every litre of water, you've got 100 grams of salt. So a cold brine um, with some flavours, get some thyme, some rosemary, garlic, bay leaf, all that sort of thing. And actually submerge your whole chicken into it for an hour. All that's going to do is hold in the flavour and keep it moist inside then. But what you want to do then is obviously dry it really well. So do that like the day before, then pull it out and put it into your, into your fridge. Then let it uh, almost dry out in your fridge. Let like the skin go back to be crispy. And then just like everybody's really, really scared of overcooking chicken. Like yeah. my mum back in the day would like, would know it was ready, but oh, let's give it another 10 minutes just in case. <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to kill anybody sort of thing. So everybody's, I think everybody's afraid of chicken. Mm. So it's, it's buying a probe is the most simple thing you can possibly do. What, like a meat thermometer? Meat thermometer. Which I got this Christmas. Brilliant. Oh, my God, it was incredible. It's a game changer, it really yeah. is. So I've given my mum a series of different temperatures. That is, you know, it's really nice and, and safe to cook to. And, like, literally stick your probe into the thickest part. If it's at 62 degrees Celsius on your chicken, pull it out. It's perfect. Let it rest for, like, 10, 15 minutes or however long you can wait while you're looking at it salivating. Yeah. Just let it relax and then carve it. We cook a roast chicken in my house at least two times a week, if, not, if not more, because it is—it it probably is my death row meal. Like, is so, it? Absolutely. So it's so simple. And a lot of people are like, oh my God, you know, you've worked in Michelin-starred kitchens around the world, you should be eating foie gras and all this sort of thing. But yeah, I might put a little bit of cheeky truffle on top just because I could if it was my death row. But <laughs> at the end of the day, a roast chicken dinner, we pretty much have most Sundays in my family because it's my daughter's favourite, yeah. it's my wife's favourite. It's such um, a kid's favourite, though, yeah, isn't it? They love I, it. And, you know, at the end of the day, it, when it's done properly, mm. whatever properly is, is it's it's blooming delicious, so well, why not? next time, Michael, I'm, the one thing I've never done is done the brine yeah. the day before. What I did at Christmas, people will be telling off now, it's fine, don't worry about <laughs> it. 
I stuffed a load of butter underneath the yep. skin and massaged it down with some tarragon, and Perfect. it was it was very juicy. I must admit, it was very nice. Well, fat is flavour. Unfortunately, in the world we live in, and we're getting told to eat less salt, less fat, and everything. Well, at the end of the day, there's no getting away from it. It's fat is flavour, and if you can do that, and and you know, we're here for a good time. Uh, just yeah. just put a little bit of a butter underneath the skin, and, and it will make the difference. Now, you did touch on that about working in Michelin style kitchens, but obviously what I want to do with you, I need to go back, 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 way back. So who was inspiring you when you were growing up? Um, so growing up, I think it was all the, the, the Ramsey, uh, Gordon Ramsey and Marco Pierre White um, was, were, were kings. The, uh, the quite rock and roll chefs of their time, weren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely. They're the sort of people that will make any young chef want to put a, you know, a set of chef whites on. And for me, looking back, they were they were my absolute heroes. Um, so it sort of started where I didn't really, I was quite lost in school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, so Where were we? Let's just go back to so geographically where we are. Yeah, so Anglesey, North Wales. That's, yeah. where, that's where I'm originally from. Mm. So the island of Anglesey. So it's, you know, going back to there. Uh, started in school and, and sort of didn't really know what I wanted to do. Got to sort of 15 um, and then basically started working as a pot wash like most of the stories you'll, you'll hear in the industry started as pot washing start at the bottom yeah in a, in a local bistro just across the across the bridge in, in Bangor um, and, it, and it got to the point where um, chef had walking out uh, walked out and then I was doing less less hours in the pot washing like oh you get over here and do this salad and start with the absolute basics and then sort of get thrown in the pastry section and stuff and sort of started thinking oh this is all right, this. And, you know, basically my 100% hours on the weekend became cooking rather than than actual pot washing. Yeah. Um, and it came to finishing school uh, and actually trying to decide what I wanted to do in my life. And and I thought, okay, let's let's pursue this and went to, to catering college in, in, in Bangor. Uh, and it was sort of a game changer for me. I literally saw something that I really sort of um, wanted to do and really, you know, wanted to get good at. Uh, so did... You know, the first twelve months in, in level one catering, uh, when student of the year. So I thought, okay, this is this is a good. Oh, start. run to a winner, eh? yeah. yeah. So second year, when student of the year again, uh, which was in two thousand. So that was student of the millennium, gimme. me. Uh, <laughs> so you know that was the real insight of ah, oh, I might want to pursue this. So mm. when I was uh, working um, in in college, doing sorry, doing college, I um, wanted to get a job in the best restaurant around, and that was a, a restaurant called the Bull's Head in Bumaris on Anglesey. Um, and the the chef there, Keith Rothwell, was really famous for doing everything fresh, so doing everything properly. So well, we were buying fish straight in uh, from the Menai Straits, you know, local meat. Farmers get growing our vegetables for us and everything. So again, it was as a fundamental basic to learn as a young chef. It was perfect. And other places weren't doing that. Not as much as Keith. Keith was just absolutely renowned. He was one of the sort of the first people in North Wales to to really push fresh food. And to do things, you know, like a lot of people are doing now, but we're talking in, you know, 98. Yeah, right. Uh, in a previous life, a long, long time ago. Yeah. But it was just, you know, he was a pioneer in, in doing that for local people. Because I was thinking about, uh, you know, sourcing local products in and around the area because, you know, the Great British menu has been going on for so many years now. But prior to that, and they focus on certain farms and dairy farms and where they go and get their fish and it's all these they've sourced them locally to where they are but I can't remember before that people doing that no well actually 
I talk about the, the year I did Great British Menu the first time in 2010, mm. that was the actual theme of the, of the actual programme was local produce. Right. And that's why I excelled because it's something sort of been drilled into me from a young age, you know. From, for, from working at, from with working Keith. there with Keith. Right. And then the, even, even more so the next position when I worked at a restaurant called Place Badegrois with Chris Chown, who was essentially the first Michelin-starred chef um, Wales ever had. Massive, massive hero, and you know, basically a good father figure of mine. Um, you know, he he took it to even even the next level. So when I was working for for Chris Chow, and he was really pushed the importance of keeping it local and you know, air miles and all that's on sustainability and yeah. stuff. So you know, when I was asked to represent Wales for Great British Menu and knew that the, the theme was actually local produce, what they were doing is giving you percentages out of a hundred percent. Basically, on how many, how much produce you're getting locally in your in your country or your area, and I was smashing late nineties for every dish because I had brilliant you know suppliers already there, so I didn't need to go and find essentially new suppliers and you make it all up and pretend you you're doing this for telly. It was literally you knew exactly who to go to because you already had a relationship it was, with. It them. was the people, and relationship is is the the biggest key for a chef is mm. actually believing in your producers and your suppliers. Um, because essentially, you know, it's, again, it's it's very hard to to get you know mediocre food and make it amazing. You you know, buying really really good uh, produce and ingredients from from local people and people you trust with a with a face, and you can pick up the phone if there ever is an issue. You know, for me, that's super important. And it gets sorted if there is a problem. Yeah, of course. And you know, you know, it's the world we live in. There always will be a few hiccups everywhere. You know, especially with fishmongers, where you know. The weather, weather dependent. You know who's going to go out picking hand dyed scallops in in Scotland when yeah. it's a tsunami. You're not, are you? No, so no, of course. You've, you've just got to take everything day by day. So when you went into that second restaurant, with forgive me, what's uh, Plasper de Grois, and right. so his name's Chris Chown. That already sounds like I'm sweating because yeah. there's pressure already. Because if he's got, he was the first yeah. Michelin star winner in Wales. The pressure is going to be on. So, what level were you going in? in so I there? went as a, as a commie chef right down the bottom. Right. So it was, it was a really small. Um, it was only four in the brigade. You know, usually when you're looking at Michelin star restaurants and stuff, you're looking at massive brigades. Um, but it was only four, so it was Chris. Is that what they call a group of chefs? A yeah, brigade. brigade. Yeah. I didn't know that. Not, a brigade go. of chefs. Every day's a school day. Brilliant. So yeah, so I was right down the bottom. I was number four of four, essentially. Right. Um, and it was, it was, you know, doing all the, the, the mediocre little small jobs. But I remember that like the first time of having that pressure where the the senior sous chef um, was London through and through. Um, so it was my first sort of little taste of working with a proper cottony, a well-driven, well-greased uh, chef. And I remember, yeah. you know, simply peeling potatoes for Sunday lunch. He used to put a timer on me. He put a timer next to the bucket and go, right, you've got this X amount of time, that bucket of potatoes, go. And it was almost, you, you're battling against the timer all the time. So that as a mentality is amazing. So you're not just going, do, 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 peeling yeah. potatoes. You've got two hours to do whatever. It's like, you've got 12 minutes, go. Well, because it is all about timing, isn't it? In, and then in the one kitchen. week you do it in 12 minutes, next week you do it in 11 and a half, next week you do it in 11. You know, right. so, you, so again, it's that you know, almost addictive You're sort just of thing. Beat, beating your personal best every that's, week. That's, that's what chefing's about, is getting better every day. And, and you know, down to a, a simple menial task like peeling a potato, you've got to be better the next week and the following week. So working at that level was amazing because it was the sort of it's the holy grail for the cooking industry the mm. you know the michelin guide the red book is what i believe that everybody gets out of bed for is, is essentially trying try and get into that book and you know try and essentially almost prove yourself to to be at the level that all your peers are and you know the industry heroes so to actually get my first position i remember when i when i went to 
for my interview with Chris and sort of going fresh out of college. And I'd won student of the year, I'd won student millennium. I'd, I'd done, you know, all these sort of different paperworks in, in college. And I went for my interview and Chris was just like, you know, I don't really know what any of that is. Like, can you cook? And I was just like, uh, yeah, chef, I, I believe so. He's like, right, you've got a job then. Because he, like, he just like didn't care that I'd won student of the year and this and the other. He was just like, literally, how good are you at your job? You know, not on paper. Can you get in the kitchen and get your head down? And and a lot of the time it is, it's about, you know, the, the personality rather than what you have on your on your CV. It's like, you know, what are you bringing to the kitchen and uh, yeah. to get an opportunity to go and work. And it was essentially the first time I'd moved away from, from home, so it was about an hour away from home. And how old were you at this point? Um, I was uh, 19. Right. Um, so living down there, literally taken away uh, from living with my mum and living down there. And, and it was a... We used to do six-day weeks, so we used to um, do Tuesday till Sunday. So we'd finish at maybe four four thirty on a Sunday, uh, and then be back again Tuesday morning. So we'd get Sunday evening and Monday off. But it was. But these are long hours, aren't they? Yeah, average? long hours. Um, you know, average kitchens. You're talking eighteen, you know, sixteen, eighteen hour days. Um, it's a bit longer than a filming day, Alan. Yeah, I know. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's a tough day, but yeah. it's, that's just the norm. It's yeah. just what you do, and, and sort of there's no way around it. And you're, you know, it's getting a lot better these days. I think a lot of people are focusing on four day weeks or four and a half day weeks, and this, that, and the other. But essentially, you can still cram a lot of hours into a four and a half day mm. week. Uh, so when you go to an interview, say for that instance, yeah. and he said, right, I don't care about these accolades because they don't really mean anything. Yeah. Uh, bottom line is, can you cook? You said, yeah. Did you have to then get in the kitchen and rustle some something up? Or? Not on that one. I have in previous previous positions, or right. more senior positions, I've had to sort of put things on a plate. But because you're going in on a commie chef, you're not really expected to, to be able to right. okay. really come up with new dishes yourself because you're, you're a young talent which is getting moulded into the future, essentially. And it's about following orders. Yeah, right. so, you know, when I've, when I've, you know, obviously I've been senior positions in many places since, and whenever you're looking at people, you might get... You know, ten or twenty people that come in for the position. It's not always, you know, the the person with the best CV that gets the job. It's it's actually, do you care? You know, do you want to be there? Do you have you got the right um, mentality to to actually bring something to to the brigade? Are you there just because your parents have told you to be there, right. or have you come there for the right reason? So, and also, I suppose, do you think to that person who's hiring think that? your personality is going to fit with however many is in this brigade. I'm going to keep using brigade now. Yeah, but that's that's exactly it. And with this really small kitchen, like four chefs, you have to get on with each other. There's, you know, yeah. you're spending, you spend more time with your team uh, than you do your loved ones. So if you all hate each other, that's a tough day, surely. And also, if you've got a chip on your shoulder, yeah. I mean, it's going to get knocked out. You're pretty sharp, Absolutely. especially, I yeah. think... In a professional kitchen, a hundred percent, and and the restaurant is is down the arm of Wales, down the Finn Peninsula, so it's it's in the back of beyond. So, you know, you, you're all sort of potentially in your in your any time off you get, you probably spend together as well because you're all just, you know, a tight knit community. Um, where Chris had been there, Chris Chown had been there for many many moons, and sort of really really took me to the next level. Like literally got that buzz into me about finding. You know the right the right ingredients and the sustainability. And he taught me a lot about business as well, where a lot of chefs, you know, might be able to put amazing food on a plate, but truly, as a as a business sense, you know, Chris, it was it was his bread and butter. At the end of the day, if it wasn't succeeding, that it's, it was his account that was, you know, feeling it. Yeah. So he was brilliant in actually truly showing me the difference between 
running a restaurant and running a business because we had, I think it was eight or ten rooms there as well. So we were classed as a restaurant with rooms because there wasn't an official sort of reception area. So, you know, it was that sort of wonderful uh, grade two Georgian house in the middle of nowhere. And it was a beautiful, stunning, and it'll always be sort of regarded as Wales as one of the greatest restaurants ever. Um, So it was amazing um, to go there. Um, So I was there for a couple of years the first time because I went back on on a previous time as well. Um, but we, what we used to do is we used to close off season. So we used to close like maybe the end of November and then reopen in February because the trade was just non-existent. So there's, you know, that, there's no point doing six on a on a Tuesday night or eight on a Wednesday night because no. you've got the same brigade there. You've got to switch all the same gas on. You've got to do this, that, and the other, and you're just going to kill yourself. So what Chris sort of he must have learned the hard way one time. So he he decided we'd always shut for maybe like about ten weeks. So a lot of the team used to go off and do different um, experiences in different other restaurants. And Is that what you did? So I, I actually, it was in 2000 and I can't remember five, whenever the Rugby World Cup was, with Johnny Wilkinson did the kick. Um, so Chris Everybody Chan, knows I know nothing I was, about I was, sport. I was, I was, <laughs> don't give me sporting references. Well, <laughs> that happened. Right. Um, so when Chris went out to Australia, um, he came back and... He said to me, he said, one day, he said, oh, what, what do you fancy doing the off-season? I said, chef, I uh, really fancy going to Australia. Um, so this is, you know, I was 21. And he said, oh, okay. I was like, I really fancy a little bit different experience out there. I sort of never said anything else about it. Um, next- is that because you didn't know what you were going to specialise in and you just wanted a sort of broader broader sort of range of spectrum of ideas? Yeah, absolutely. I think chefs... At a young age, I think it's really good to sort of learn from different peers and different chefs. I think it's it's very hard to know what your own style is until you've worked for other people. Yeah. And then you can actually pinpoint what actually close to your heart and what you what you believe in. Um, so it's really good to sort of not, not hop, skip and jump. When you look at a CV and he's done two months there, one month there, three months there, you know that's danger. The chef's not going to stay with you. And but- I suppose at such a young age, you're just trying to... Uh, portray somebody else's style to the best of your ability. Absolutely. You yeah. are literally You're copying... somebody copy, else's food on a plate, Yeah, copy you? and paste, and that's what's the really sort of really getting connected to the belief of, of the chef, um, whoever's food it is, and just getting drilled to, to cook it properly, to you know, present it properly, because you know, it all matters. So essentially I thought, okay, let's, let's dip my toes into, a, into a Australia, because you know, as, a, as a young guy, you always look at Australia thinking how beautiful it is. Yeah. Um, so we came in the following day um, and, and Chris used to cook breakfast and you sort of used to let him cook breakfast and, and after after breakfast service he came to me and said, Alec, office now. And I was just like, oh my God, what have I done? So straight into his office and there's, there was a, a small office with a, a desk and two chairs uh, across from each other. So I obviously went to, to sit down at one of the chairs. He goes, no, no, my chair. I was like, okay. So I sat in his chair. He's like, look at my laptop. So there was an email on it saying, I'd be delighted to offer Alad Williams a chef to party position at the Bathers Pavilion uh, in North Shore, Sydney. I was just like, what? Oh, this, my God. And so I was just like, what's going on, chef? He's like, oh, yeah, I sent um, an email to, to the chef. When he went out there to, to follow England for the Rugby World Cup, he went to a series of different restaurants. And this was his personal favourite restaurant and sort of a restaurant that he believed would connect to, to what I've been cooking for the years beforehand and what I'd learned. Um, so yeah, and he was just like, yeah, I've, you've worked amazing for me the last couple of years, uh, and it's a bonus. I'm going to pay for your flight. Oh, no I was just like, this is just, you know like tear jerking stuff. Like, yeah. like, like I said, he, he's he's helped me a lot in my life, and you know to actually get that experience, I was just like, right, I have to commit to this. Now it was just an idea beforehand. <laughs> it was just like mm. I just I fancy Australia. Now I'm actually going. 
so the flight's booked in, I think it was January the 2nd or something. So you've got, and then you're moving to the other side of the world to, to crack on with it. So it was a, wow, okay. But also, <laughs> it says so much about him as a nurturing figure, but a lot of what he thought about you, because you just mentioned it, as you just said, but he's now pushing you yeah. to go further. Yeah, you could see the spark, which yeah. you know, which is sort of a, a thing, like I said, for, for young chefs that really want to try and succeed and try and, you know, make a little name for themselves. It's almost like having that great teacher that, you know, everybody talks about that one great yeah, teacher that inspired it's them. A, it's a tough one because sometimes you want to hold on to what you've got and there might be a young chef that you think is amazing you think, I wish he stayed with me forever. But then you can't hold people back as well. So it was it was a really good step for, for you know, a brave step almost that like Chris would, would actually want me to go to Australia because, yeah. you know, you're not going there for five minutes. So No, exactly. Yeah, I went out there and it was, it was phenomenal. So I worked in, in Bathers Pavilion. Uh, and then Helen, my now wife, um, she was in university at, uh, university at the time, so she came over, and then we we travelled the whole uh, North Shore um, on the East Coast. So we and was there was there a time frame, or did you just go, well, let's go and see what happens? Yeah, we sort of booked a um, sort of a year visa, and then went out there. Um, and then t- Helen was restricted with the university, so she came out for I think it was about a month. Um, so yeah, based in Sydney, worked our way down to Melbourne, flew back up to Cairns, and then back down to Sydney. So it was a, a huge chunk of the country. And again, what you learn from actually travelling, I'm a massive believer of you know uh, I've learned a lot, not necessarily in the kitchen sometimes, but just just travelling. Yeah. So we we did that. Um, so when we were coming to the end of Australia, I was I was looking back home again, thinking right, and what's what's the up and coming? What are the great restaurants? Um, and I saw there was a chef called Adam Simmons in a restaurant called Anisheer, which is in Mid Wales. Uh, Anisheer is where Gareth Ward is now, and he's just phenomenal, absolutely. You know, I'm, I have no idea how that chef hasn't got two Michelin stars for Wales, but he's a you know phenomenal chef. But um, when I was there in 2005, it was it was Adam Simmons who was Le Manoir through and through, chef again, one of the most driven people I've ever worked with, and. It was a like a small twelve cover restaurant, really small. Three of us in the kitchen, but again, we were doing mega hours there because he was so, you know, precise. Of the, the actual perfection he was trying to get on a plate was phenomenal, and it was some of the best accolades Wales has ever seen yeah. um, when he was there and so driven. Um, so I went to came back and um, did a did a work experience uh, with Adam and uh, got the job, um, which was phenomenal. So I was with him. Uh, stayed with Adam for six months before I then started looking um, across the border to England because um, there was a job coming up at, at Midsummer House in Cambridge. Right. Um, two-star Michelin. Yeah. So, again, it was that sort of almost what's the difference between the one-star to the two-star uh, and, and actually seeing what it took to get to the next level. So, uh, again, went for a job at Midsummer House and, and, and got that and started at, at Midsummer House. Um, and when you're going up to a two-star, is there, is there much more pressure? Yeah, of course. Or, or is it, is think, it just a different class? Yeah, absolutely. I think the pressure is the same no matter what you are. Um, I think a lot of kitchens set the pressure and you obviously set the pressure yourself as well. Yeah. I think there is definitely a different quality. Um, so there was 12 of us in the kitchen there. So there was six sections, two per section. Um, I think you when you, as soon as you walk in, you know there's a different feel different class of you know the pressure that you're under to, to actually you know emulate um the chef's food and it was amazing you know the, the food there is some of the, the food that i've connected to uh, the most um where daniel clifford's sort of almost really likes taste and textures so if he put something on a plate he'd put um beef a couple of different textures carrots three ways four ways or something and take something you know it might only be two ingredients but you might have 
10 elements on your plate. Sure. And it's something that I, I have connected to. So I love that sort of taste and texture sort of feel to it. Um, and just going back to kitchens and just going back to Australia for a second, we've touched on the the energy and the intensity of various kitchens here and in, in Wales. Is there a different energy in, in Australia? Do they, they go about things differently there or is it... Is the impact the same? The impact's pretty close. There's no Michelin over there, so they've got chef hats in the restaurant I was working at. It was a two-hat right. restaurant. Um, phenomenal. It was right on the coast, right on the beach, and you could literally see the seaside from the kitchen. It was phenomenal. Wow. But obviously you're in there sweating because <laughs> I was working on the hot starter section to start off with, and you I had a salamander in my face, a hot grill in front of me, an oven down by my knees. It was like everything was just pumping heat towards yeah. the face. So at any point you had a break, you just all dive into the sea and hope you're not going to get eaten by a shark, essentially. <laughs> um, the, the head chef was Australian, but predominantly he would employ Europeans. Right. Because his words were, Australians are lazy. <laughs> his words. <laughs> um, get that out there now. <laughs> so it was, um, so he, the kitchen was was mostly Europeans and um, there was quite a few uh, Australians there as well and funny enough a lot of those Australians that I worked in Australia in Sydney with came over and started working in the Ledbury in London um, right because Brett Graham is Australian himself so yeah. so a couple of the guys that I worked with you know worked a long time with with Brett Graham so I, you know, I've seen them since and they've gone on to fantastic things but I think the pressure was was similar um, the produce is very different which is which is amazing because there's no fish alike over there that there is in our seas. Right. So you could sort of almost look at something and go, that sort of looks like a trout or that sort of looks like a halibut. Then you've sort of, your experience will tell you how to cook it, right or wrong. Obviously, the chef will show you how, how they do it as well. But, you know, a lot of the Morton Bay um, bug tails are similar to sort of almost like a crayfish or a lobster or something. Right, so okay, it, yeah, yeah. using my own British experience to look at their ingredients and know what to do. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was, you know, again, it was... Big hours, like like every every place is. But what I've learned there was was really good because they've got a lot of Asian influence uh, over there yeah, as well. Yeah, of course, yeah. Which I adore. Mm. I've, you know, I, I really do uh, love uh, love Asian influence in my cuisine as well. Um, Just going back to hours now. These we've already touched. These are long hours. They're intense hours. Yeah. You're not going to have time for much of your personal life at this point. Now I'm thinking, because you're still with Helen, she's yeah. still your girlfriend yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Is that having an impact on your personal life? Oh, massively, because you, as the industry is renowned for sort of putting all your personal life in a box and forget about it and stick it under your bed and it might come back out one day. But it's, yeah. you know, you've got to say no to, to, to weddings, to birthdays. You know, it's your best mate's 20th birthday. You know, so what? You can't get off. You can't go to your chef and say, chef, especially at you know, a restaurant like Place Bodegrois, and there's only four chefs there. We couldn't take any time off because there's nobody to cover. There's if, only four in your brigade, yeah, Alid. You can't take any time off. 100%. And that's genuinely what it was. So that when you took your 10 weeks off at the end of the year, that was your personal time to, you just hope that, you know, something might happen, you know, for your birthdays or anniversaries or Christmas in that time. Because, um, in larger restaurants, yeah, you might be able to wiggle off a few days here and there, but almost you can't let the team down as well. It's that mental sort of, you know, pain that, oh, can't let the brigade down as well, so I can't go to this, I can't go to that. So yeah. You say no to pretty much everything in your life. So to actually find, you know, someone in your life that will, will, will go on this journey with you is difficult. And, you know, I've obviously found an absolute keeper, hence yeah. my wife now. And what does um, what does Helen do for anything? So she works in the charity sector. Right. Um, so she, she's got a couple of different jobs, but again, based at home for, for good family life, and it works perfectly uh, for us now. So she's never been in the food industry, which I sort of like as well, because 
sometimes when you work in the same sector, you, you go home and you, you might have a bit of a whinge about what's happening in, in your world and stuff. Yeah, and that, That's hard work, Alan, trust yeah, me. Yeah, I know. That's um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm really happy that, you know, sort of uh, she, she's never worked in them. So she, yeah. she'll listen to me to a point and go, I right, shut up, I'm bored of that. Uh, yeah, on. and also it puts things into perspective, doesn't it, for you? Yeah. yeah. And we'll get on to later on about how you're in a position now where you yeah. can spend more time at home. But let's go back to this, what, I forget me, the name, we've had so many brilliant names of restaurants. Where are we now? We're in a, a two Michelin star. Midsummer House. Midsummer, Midsummer House, that's right. Yeah, so Midsummer House, um, we're, so And what there, were you there, Chef de Party? Chef de Party. Um, so I was on the garnish section. Garnish section is pretty much considered one of the toughest sections in... Explain to in, me what that is. So the garnish, you're cooking everything that goes next to the meat, essentially, or the fish. Um, so right. all the vegetables and, and that sort of thing. Okay. So you've got a sauce section, which will make the sauces and probably cook the meat and the fish, um, depending on how big your brigade is. Sometimes you have to multitask on different sections. But I was running the garnish, and like I said, where Daniel's food was, you know, a beautiful piece of meat with maybe eight or nine different textures sat next to it. Well, obviously, I had to cook all those. So if you've got an a la carte menu where table of six will order six different main courses. You're talking potential 30, 36 different things to get oh. ready at the same time. So where the saucier or the, the meat cook would have one duck, one cod, one halibut, blah, blah, blah. And that's tough, you know, to obviously cook all them to perfection, but to cook 30-odd different yeah. garnishes to go. And also you've all got to be in sync because Absolutely. if his meat's ready and he's, he's sourced it all up and you haven't got that garnish on, Literally, everything's going to go to pot. It has to be for timing. So usually whoever's cooking the meat or the fish will, will, will break down the timing. So you, you look to uh, him or her, they'll say, right, and five minutes to the pass and count down, four, three, two, one, and you've sort of all come up together. And then whoever's working the, the pass might be the, the head chef, uh, so there'll be the yes, no man, whoever's going onto the plate. So if, if you bring in 30 of those elements up at the same time and three of them are, are below par, you're going to know about it because at the end of the day, the meat will overcook, the fish will go cold, blah, blah, blah. So it's an expensive mistake. So so what happens if it goes to the pass? And I take it, is it the head chef that yeah. clears it before it goes? Yeah, yeah. And he's not happy with certain elements. Yeah. Does it just get slung out, and yeah. then you have to go over again? Absolutely, exactly that. So, so. Oh my god! Was, I mean, you must that that must have happened at some point. Yeah, to no, you, you sort of that. That was one of the kitchens that you'd know about it in Central. There be might be a pan flying <laughs> left, right, and centre. And at the end of the day, is it's a it's a business as well. So you know, if you've got a table of six and you've got to start again. You know, some things, you know, meat might be able to hold, you might be able to get 30 seconds or a minute out of meat or something. But with fish, it literally is like a mountain. As soon as you hit the peak of the mountain where it's cooked to perfection, whatever yeah. that is, there's only one way it's going, and that's downhill. Yeah. It's getting cold, it's dry, it's just not so pleasant to eat. So it's really super important that everything comes up at the same time, cooked well, and if not, if you're, if you're running behind or struggling, it takes a brave chef to put their hand up and say, chef, I need two more minutes. Because sometimes the, the meat cook can bring the pan, you know, a little bit to the left, so it's not so vigorous, it's not so hot, so it's yeah. slowing down that sear of the meat or the fish or whatever. So not only is it about synchronicity, it's about communication. Communication is so key in this industry, it really is. And, you know, obviously it takes a brave person to say, I'm not quite there, chef, please yeah, help, yeah. I need this. But at the end of the day, um, and that's that's how brave you've got to be and just say, right, I need a minute, I need two minutes because the food will be better for it. So, yeah, you might get your head blown off for not being there. But, but it'll be but worth it at the end of the day. Communicating before you actually get to the pass, making sure the quality is there before you actually put it on a plate 
because it's you, you know, it's one of those sort of sink or swim moments. There is making sure that everything is is cooked uh, correctly. And I suppose just sticking your head above the parapet and saying, "I need two yeah. minutes. I yeah. need thirty seconds." That will come with age and knowledge, I suppose. Because you wouldn't be saying that when you're a nineteen-year-old. No, not at all. And it's one of those again, experience. You can't. Everybody says you can't be experienced, and it's, it's super true. You know, at the end of the day, you can get young chefs that are really good cooks, but you know, it takes good experience to understand that you're not quite on your timings. Um, and timing is, is crucial for any kitchen. So it's it's a brave man, but it's the correct decision. And yeah. ho- hopefully, the the meat and the fish uh, won't sort of sacrifice for for your ill timings, if you like. Now, going back through when you started out, when you were peeling those potatoes, to where we are now, right? Um, at at the, yeah. where we are in our story yeah. here, talking. Yeah. Have you seen a change in? the kitchens in the brigades because I'm sure when you started out at 19 it was very male heavy are uh, is it is the ratio getting better are we seeing more because you know I think of uh Angela Hartner or I think of someone like Claire Smythe who were like incredible at what Absolutely. they do but yeah. they've been they've been working on it for 20 odd yeah plus years yeah are we seeing more females come into the kitchen now I suppose was it accepted back then? I mean, it's so. It seems like the Marco Piawai stuff. It seemed like such a lads' club and yeah. quite a bull, from an outsider, quite and quite bully boy sort of tactics. Absolutely, and I'm sure they wouldn't speak in the way that they do about women now. You know, otherwise they'd get a frying pan Absolutely. over their head. Yeah, you couldn't quite right do it whatsoever. Yeah, um, a lot of the kitchens, you know, I've worked in have been male. Uh, dominant that's, there's there's no way around that um, I think modern day kitchens have got a lot more females which is brilliant because they bring that wonderful temperament which you know sort of almost that mother like we're like no you, you can't do that mm. which is which is really good for modern day kitchens um, my last executive chef was Lisa Goodwin Allen in Northcote yeah wow that, that lady brilliant. is phenomenal brilliant, yeah. her, her food is just brilliant the touch the, the presentation that almost feminine sort of touch of the presentation is something that I Absolutely, I learned incredible a lot skill. Yeah, Lisa's Lisa's brilliant, and she's an absolute machine. Where you look at look at Northcote, so um, I was against Lisa on Great British Menu uh, when I was the Welsh champion. She was the champion of the Northwest, so right. sort of known her since 2010. Um, and then in I don't know, was it eight years ago? Um, she was um, going on maternity leave, so they wanted someone to go to Northcote as as a senior position to sort of almost take her position while she went off. Um, and I took that role. Um, oh, did yeah. So I was I was the head chef in Northcote when Lisa went on on maternity, um, and then when she came back, she was promoted to executive chef. So we worked together. So it was Nigel at the top, then Lisa, then myself, because it's a huge hotel. Um, yeah. And there's like thirty odd in the kitchen, so it's, it's a beast. Um, so it needs that really good firm senior positions at the top. So yeah, I worked with with Lisa for for a couple of years, um, and yeah, the, the lady is. Is, is an inspiration to all of us. So, Absolutely, and, yeah. and you know there, there was um, females in the kitchen in Northcote as well, um, but like I said, it's, it's there's not as many as, as you might think. Um, or but, do you think not as many as there should be? Yeah, or, I mean, I suppose yeah. the. Uh, do you think the door is more open than it was? Yes. 
years oh, ago. Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of people are, are really pushing to, especially with uh, the Roof Scholarship and these wonderful competitions that are out there. Mm. Um, you know, so it was, a, it was a big drive a couple of years ago for the, for the Roof Scholarship to try and get more females in there. And, and there was, there's a really good run of, of getting some wonderful talent through to there, which is only going to be really good for the industry. Um, but now it's, it's you know, you, you'd, you'd hope that you'd never get discriminated like you would back in the day. No, of course um, not. Obviously, you can't speak for everybody. There's going to be idiots out there. But, yeah, yeah. but you know, the, the kitchens, it's it's down to how good you are. It doesn't matter, you know, what you are. And, and you know, looking the the names you've named, Angela Hartnett, she seems to judge me everywhere I go. So she, <laughs> she judged me on Great Bush Menu. She judged me when I won the Ramsey Scholarship. You know, she's she's been a judge of, of my food many places. Yeah. And, you know, she has the Welsh background as well. So mm. the connection there... You know, Claire Smythe, of, of course. I mean, wow. Mm. You know, a lot of people say she's the greatest female chef. It doesn't matter if she's female. She is one of the greatest chefs yeah, on this stop. planet. Yeah. Full stop. What that lady can do is a huge inspiration to, to all of us that wear white. She is an absolute phenomenal lady. So, you know, it doesn't matter that she's female. She is just amazing. Now, we've spoken about the intensity of a service in a kitchen. When you bring television cameras because I want to talk about how we start the Great British Menu now. Does that change things for you? Yeah. Or because you've probably got how many cameras? You've got at least three cameras Absolutely. around. yeah. And it's, they're getting right into what you're doing. And there's a time limit as well. So it is like, it is like a service. And also it, your food's being not judged just by punters. It's being judged by food professionals. Yeah, it was it was a completely different sort of world to what I was used to. You know, being a small cog in big machines in the industry, where you sort of working your way down from the bottom to, to as high as you can possibly get. But to to get the phone call to do I want to represent Wales on the Great British Menu? That's, you know, that was huge for me because did you did you have to think about that? No, no, in, instantly. So basically, what they do is they, they um, when I did it, they they asked about five chefs to do um, sort of. A, a screen um, sort of camera day so they'd come into the kitchen just to see if you could multitask and actually cook on camera and you weren't just the head down silent oh, chef. Oh, so, there's, so they, there's a bit of a screen test yeah, before? Yeah, screen test beforehand. Right. So they came to the kitchen beforehand and they spent the day with me to, to see that I could uh, chat as well as cook at the same time. And, and I believe, uh, what restaurant were you at this point? So I was back at Place Bodegro. So, the, so ah, actually, so I went, um, after going to a few different places, I went back to Place Bodegro as head chef. Right. So again, it was full circle, um, I was only 26, which was, you know, the pressure of being a head chef of a, That's of a Michelin star. That's a lot of pressure, so young, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but again, it was that, at that time in my life where I was really hungry for, for where I wanted to be. Uh, because it seems what I'm getting from yeah. where we've gone from the potatoes yeah, yeah. <laughs> is like there's a real sort of sportsman-like ambition here. Yeah. So there, there, there is end game, there is goals, isn't yeah. there? Oh, 100%. And that's, that's where I've sort of... Again, it's been driven into me probably in the kitchens I've come through is, is the sort of the hunger to succeed because nothing else is acceptable to, to, to you know, you, you have to be your best every day you, you get out of bed. Um, and to be invited back as head chef from Chris was, was an amazing full circle. Um, so it was representing the restaurant. Like I said, it's one of the regarded as one of the all-time greatest restaurants in, in Wales. Yeah. So Chris was still there, Chef, chef Patron, he was still in, doing service with me. But, you know, to be essentially his his wingman and yes no man to to make sure the quality that we aspire to every day was was still good enough and still you know getting better all the time and getting new suppliers and getting new produce was phenomenal so, so were you coming in there and you were 
bringing in new ideas and you were ticking things off at the past. You were yeah. just stepping up to yeah. be a head chef. So it was my first ever head chef job and, and it was it was amazing. I remember going there and we, we got into the kitchen like a week before we opened, reopened Place Bodegras. I was saying it was closed off season. I remember doing my, my first ever menu. And it's tough as, as a head chef, your first ever menu, sort of you haven't really got your own dishes. So you're sort of trying to be inspired by things you've done before and stuff and working on your style because you don't truly know what your style of cuisine is. You're sort of, like I said, you're picking from different inspirations that you might have worked in in your career. So I remember my first ever menu and I showed it to Chris and he just tore it apart. And he was just like, you know, there's no balance on this menu. You're just showing off. I was like, you're completely right because that's exactly what I was trying to do. It was like a, a whole career, the last 20 years, whatever it was, 15 yeah. years of my career, let's get it all on the first menu. I've got, you know, I've got to prove just, everything just, on this. Yeah. I'm going to complete it on the very first menu. And he was just like, there's no balance of flavours, no balance of um, fruits on there, vegetables on there, blah, 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 textures, ingredients. And it was just like, you're 100% right, chef, obviously, because he, he was what he was. He, was. he was always right. But it was... You know, but you're going to be nervous, Yeah, of course you, you are. You're going to have to just sort of... Sp- splurge it all out <laughs> and just go right, okay everything yeah. I've done is going to go on one menu and exactly it's so, it, so it was like almost taking a step back and, and, and finding the style and there was the Place Bodegros style don't get me wrong I wasn't reinventing what they were on what they believed in it was it was complementing what Chris's style had always been and yeah. sort of working together closely and sort of keeping the style up because there was there was real great loyal customer base down there you know like I said you're down the middle of nowhere in, in down the Klim Peninsula so there was there was people that used to travel down there a lot of people from London would go there because it was the back of beyond and they would just forget about their their worries and their strides from, from down south and then yeah. um, you know you'd get that wonderful bread and butter of the local people that would come all the time so suddenly they couldn't come to pass Bedagos and go well, why is that liquid nitrogen poached something oh because the chef might have worked for Pest and Bloom with that mm, but, but you're not at the fat duck you're, you're, yeah. you're here so you have to be complementary to, to where you're working as well and not just completely change what the, the, the locals believed in as well so it was it was almost working out who I was and, and you know the direction that I wanted to go with Chris and, and sort of the future essentially so that's that's where I was when we had the phone call um for GBM and yeah. uh, it was crazy because if you, if you break down England England's five regions um, but Wales is one you know, you're, rep, you know you get asked to represent your whole country it's like the Chef Olympics isn't it it's, yeah yeah it's huge you, you go in there and yeah so uh, I went there and I was up against um, two Michelin starred chefs and you know being the head chef of, of Place Bodegros it wasn't my star it was Chris's Michelin star so I wasn't a Michelin starred chef yes I was the head chef of a Michelin starred the other time the other two competitors had their own Michelin stars. So did you feel more pressure yeah. sort of competing against them yeah. and putting your food up against all these judges? Yeah, definitely. Because they were not backers are coming forwards with their opinions, oh, are they? Far from it. And, and they were well respected within the industry themselves, older than me, more experienced than me. Um, so I was going there and you, you're almost putting your heart in your sleeve and, and, and showing what you can hopefully do. Um, and yes, cooking for these judges and Angela Hartnett was was the you know, the guest judge there as well. Um, and it was just it was an amazing experience, but I found it quite negative as well. So obviously, you're in getting, what respect you're getting pushed to be a little bit negative and bitchy to each other. Which uh, my glass is always half full. I love promoting people. I love putting my arm on people and telling people you know the good things rather than Do you think there's all the one bad bit things. of that dramatics for the cameras. Of course, that's yeah. exactly what it is, and I totally get it because you know that sort of almost that tension feel where you've got. And, you know, you might say 10 uh, 
positive things about uh, a chef's dish, but you might see one criticism and you know that's the only one that's going to get aired. Yeah. And, and, and that's telly. I get that and sort of I learned that from that. So I sort of almost wasn't didn't enjoy the, the almost you, negative side to it. You can kind of tell. I can yeah. certainly tell yeah. when uh, on the, those types of programmes yeah. they're being steered into being slightly negative yeah. because that would be nice, that would be better for the camera. Absolutely. And, and and I get it because, you know, see, I've watched enough television to, to understand and that's the way and it's, it's you know, it's almost not falling for the, the words that are getting fed to you as well. You yeah. know, somebody to the side of the camera might choose to ask you a question and almost try and put some some words in there and, and you, when you're young and naive you just want to please don't you yeah. and you might just say yes I believe that <laughs> and then you say it and go actually it's not something I would normally say so sure. it's it was amazing and, and to get your name out there because I believe um, when I did it back in the day there was, there was an audience of like 12 million or something which is mega it's yeah. obviously it's huge compared to I think the numbers aren't quite there in modern day, I think obviously a lot yeah, of people now, watching. In I mean, look at the cooking shows. It's that just we've got. amazing. I mean, it's saturated. It was yeah. everything yeah. at every time of the day. Yeah. But Great British Menu, it was like six o'clock, I think, on yeah, BBC was Two. Time. It was yeah. prime time. It was yeah. nothing. That we, it wasn't compete with anything around no, that time. Was... I remember we were seeing new chefs from new regions. Yeah. Uh, new farms, new dairy farms. It was an incredible show. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And it really was, you know, a program that any any chef and you look. You know, look at the chefs that have actually been on it. You know, when I was, um, I was lucky enough to, to win the Welsh Heat, so then I went uh, through to represent my country, um, and I was up against Nathan Outlaw and you know Tom Kerridge. Yeah. You know, phenomenal, yeah. absolute heroes of mine. Lisa, Lisa Allen, like I said, I met um, Alan Murchison again, Michelin starred. Will Holland, Michelin starred. Uh, uh, Kenny Atkinson, Michelin starred. So all these guys that were in the kitchen, you know, Nathan and Tom both had two Michelin stars. And they were just absolute gods to me. So they were probably looking at me going, who's exactly, who's this kid? <laughs> and I sort of, you know, boys on tour, you, you, you might film in the day and have a few beers at night. So I didn't want to get too carried away because my focus was, was was truly on trying to achieve and put my name um, on a pedestal, if you like. And then, so I sort of wasn't overly, you know, in with the crowd on the first couple of days. And they were just still looking at me. I remember um, when it came to, the fish in the main course uh, I got both those dishes in the, in the top three of the series um, and on the fish course uh, I came second to Kenny Atkinson um, his dish was phenomenal came second to Tom Kerridge on, on the main course but on the fish course day Nathan Outlaw came out to me and said Alad your fish was my favourite of the week and I mean no Nathan Outlaw if anybody yeah. doesn't know him is the number one fish cook in the UK Yeah, the guy is just god when it comes to seafood so for Nathan to actually say to me that meant way more than some of the other. And also, he didn't have to go and say that. That's no. the best compliment ever, isn't it? hundred yeah. percent. And that's the sort of guy he is. He's very, very sort of wonderful, down to earth, amazing yeah. chef. He, so, he always comes across like that. I must admit, as does Tom Carriage. Yeah, again, yeah. that Tom Carriage. I remember that sort of that laugh he has was super contagious. You might be in a different room, and then you just hear Tom with that laugh he's got from a different room, and it just makes you smile. So yes, you were under massive pressure because everybody was there to essentially, um, you know, represent their region or country or whatever it was, and everybody wants to be at the banquet. But there was there was a lot more support um, together in the finals week, I think. Uh, everybody sort of came together to, to work, you know, well, and if, if anybody needed that little bit of a push, then people would be there for each other as and well. support, It yeah. wasn't that almost that dog-eat-dog, it was that almost the great, the industry that we actually, truly work in. 
Yeah. Is it a supportive industry? Do you think? Oh, even more so after the after lockdown and all the um, you know the last couple of years we've all had. I truly believe we're, we're closer than ever. Yeah. Um, yes, obviously you can't speak for everybody. There'll be some people that want to be me, myself, and I. But yes, there's so many people that want to support um, people that look after each other. And but it does seem like a close knit industry. Yeah. For how widespread it is, because of the amount of people I know. Oh yeah, that know. Oh well, I know that person. That person knows that person. Oh yeah, I've worked there. Yeah. And because you because you, whereas we've already you know established and discussed, you move around and you go right. I'm gonna I'll do eighteen months here, and then yeah. I'm gonna go and move to this and. You know, I suppose it's a bit like acting. After yeah. certain times, you go, "Oh yeah, well, I worked with so and so on that job, and worked with that job. We had that relationship there." Exactly that. And if you're working, you might work, like I said, at, at some place. There might be twelve chefs there. They all go their own separate paths, and you might go and meet up with them again. And you've always building up all these different connections throughout your entire career. You'd be stupid not to use them again. Mm. And like, you can never know everything. So it's, it doesn't take much to, to drop to, to a friend chef and say, "Right, chef, I've seen you do this on on Instagram or whatever." You know. I don't, you don't need the full recipe. It might be one method or something. You know, what, what was that method? What are you doing there? And, you know, it'd be, it'd be bonkers to not use those connections. So, yeah, I, I truly believe that the industry is really, really tight and, and wonderful. And, and, you know, you can't feel afraid to ask questions to, to your peers and people you admire to. Um, obviously, copying and emulating is, is frowned upon, but being inspired by methods, you know, there's, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. No, of course not. Um, what... When you came out of the Great British Menu that first time, you obviously left with a bit of a spring in your step. Yeah. Did you go back to being head chef or was... Yeah. Yes, you did. Yeah, so I was head, um, head chef there and, and business boomed. It was massive. You know, a lot of people were travelling then to... to We put the, the menu on the menu, um, and rightly so, and people yeah. would come in just to see, you know, oh, you got nine out of ten for this. You got I this. want to try you that. Know, so let's, let's... You know, we we just... We, we used that and, and, and went with it and people were travelling up to see. So you were... You know, getting your name in, like we said, primetime television, and that's never going to be bad for, for for your career. Um, Fantastic advertising. Yeah, it really yeah. was, and and you know, to the business uh, on on sort of slower, quieter weeks was just full because of what Great British Many the effect that when people watched it. So yeah, it went back to Plaza de Gris. Um, as head chef there, and, and and yeah, it was it was massive for us. Really was. And what was the next step after that? Did you want to have your own place? Yeah, so I went back to Anglesey. Um, so um, met a, a, a farmer couple uh, back in Anglesey and they were looking to open, um, it was almost a delicatessen, uh, sort of a daytime brasserie feel and then a, a restaurant as well as a butchery. So it was sort of almost everywhere. It was God, like there's a lot, lot going on many there, ticks were, yeah. were ticked. Many, many boxes were ticked. Yeah. Um, so uh, Brian and Fiona were local um, farmers on, on Anglesey and they were, they were producing the best uh, Welsh bar beef. It was just phenomenal. So I sort of met these and came up with the vision of in Bumaris on Anglesey. And uh, so by day we had Mubar Oink, <laughs> um, which was the sort of the, the buttery side of it. And everything was coming from the farm. Literally the cows, the lamb and the pig were from the farm. So if you wanted to know any traceability, absolutely the, the knowledge is yours. I can yeah, tell you the name. Tell yeah. you everything. And then we had a delicatessen which really promoted uh, local Welsh produce, so everything, again, everything I believed in. Um, so loads of different Welsh suppliers, local uh, people were in the deli, so people could come um, and grab whatever they wanted from there. Daytime, we had a more relaxed sort of um, what we call coffee mubaink, so it was, it was cooking wonderful, you know, a, a whole Welsh place from from the Menai Strait. So it's come straight out of the water, and I mean literally stone's throw from, from the restaurant 
simply grilled, wonderful caper butter. So real classic uh, cooking there. But s- simple, but... Yeah, real family-friendly yeah. fish and chips. You know, again, you know, if you want a great steak from, from the farm, triple cook chips, you know, that, that wonderful food you want to eat. Yeah. Um, and then at night time, we had um, the restaurant upstairs, which was called Kenning, which is Leeks in Welsh, um, by Allard Williams. So we had that restaurant upstairs, um, so it ticked a lot of boxes because if you if you came to either the restaurant or the or the the cafe, I really like that steak. Well, we sell it, you know. I really like that. Whatever, it's in the shop. So a lot of people would go there, enjoy their experience on the way out. They pick up something on on the way out as well. And so you you're really helping and promoting local suppliers uh, and people uh, with surrounding areas, as well as being able to put. Uh, my own sort of stamp. So it wasn't it wasn't my restaurant. It was named after me, but uh, the farmers owned it. So I worked closely with them for uh, just over four years. Right. Um, before I took the opportunity to go back into um, to Northcote into Michelin. Um, so that was the sort of the jump of uh, going back to to Northcote to, to lead a really well respected uh, yeah. brigade over there. They just had a huge investment into the hotel. Um, where they'd redone the kitchen. And, and for me, the kitchen is one of the best kitchens in the UK. It's just outrageous size of it, the equipment there, everything about it. Um, and to, again, to be in and around um, the well-respected, to work with Nigel Howard, to work with Lisa Allen, all that sort of thing. So it was a big decision to almost go over the border again and to, to move my family once again. Again, of course, um, you're moving so, the family because yeah. obviously... Children are involved kids now. Then, so they were they were teeny tiny then. So, yeah. Um, so they were I think were one and three. Um, my two girls when we moved. So They're much more mobile at that age. Absolutely. That's what I mean because you haven't really got any problems. They hadn't started school or anything like that. So it was it was moving the family for the for the best reasons. Uh, and Helen um, obviously coming over to Lancashire. Um, so. Yeah. It's great, great county, Lancashire. By us whatsoever. No, not at all. Not at all. Now, there's got to come a time where you've got to take the foot off the gas. Because up to now, it's been very sportsmanlike, not only in the ambition, but the the choices and the opportunities that you've had. Um, and where we are now, where we're talking to you now, where you're here, this is your new job. I want to say yeah. new job, but I was not that new, yeah, really, is it? I've been here five and a half years. Five and a half years. Yeah. So five and a half years ago, yeah. everything kind of changed. Yeah. Can we just explain? It's quite very hard for me to, t- to say what it is. <laughs> so we're, we're here at True Foods. Yeah. True Foods is in, in Yorkshire. Yeah. Um, True Foods is world famous uh, for fresh stock. Um, so we make fresh stock for most of the industry peers. So pretty much if you could name a Michelin-starred chef or, or a good chef, potential customers of ours. Um, because the one thing, when I, when I first met you and Mitch last year, I was quite shocked to find out that most people don't make their own stock. It's it's one of those things, one of those ingredients that uh, I true because I was a customer before I joined here, so I can I can talk about it from from either side of it. Where I think a lot of people are saying they want to do less hours, and they want to do this, want to do that. Um, so it's, you almost look at what you're making, um, but for me, it's actually a more consistent product. So as a chef, um, you might buy a whole animal in, so you'll get a whole lamb in, let's say. So you might butcher the forequarter, the front of the animal, the start of the week, you make a stock out of that. You might butcher the hindquarter, make the back of the week, make a stock out of that. Or as a chef, you might phone up your butcher and say, I need 50 kilo bones. You don't spec anything. It's just 50 kilo of said bone from that animal. When well, you were, sorry, just 
if you were making a stock from, say, the front of the yeah, lamb, yeah. and then you were making it from the back of the lamb, is that because it's two very different flavours? Yeah, so every bone has a different gelatinous quality or, or cellular structure. So, and like fat content, if you look at like cows, for instance, you know, you've got bone marrow full of bones. But, you know, the fat is, is an enemy of stock. Essentially, that's where, where you get bone broths and stuff like that, where you want the, the fat into it. So, actually, to break it down scientifically, what we do here at True Foods is make a way more consistent stock for, for the industry. Um, so it doesn't matter if you buy a bag of our stock in, on a Monday in January to a Wednesday in March, you know, we're hopefully giving you the most consistent stock possible because what we do is we break it down to the actual, we only use one bone um, from, from the animal and we always spec it. So it's it's the same spec of, of bone, the same recipe of of. Uh, mirapar vegetables the same you know so what we're doing is just doing it on a grander scale so the same kettles the same temperature the same people a lot of people that work here at true foods are you know 10 plus years there's many people that work for mitch and and jack for a long long time yeah. so what we're doing is giving the kitchens a more consistent stock than they can actually make themselves and you think a lot of people will be making a stock overnight again you know you put it on before you go and you come back and it's it's there when you come in for breakfast and stuff you know Crazy, because yeah, obviously, yeah. like you know, obviously you don't need to go into the dangers of, of that, and no. you know, it's invalidating your insurance and all that sort of jazz. But that's that's a sort of an average thing because you can't really have a stock kettle on during the day because it might take over, you know, your your solid top, or you take three of your burners off from your six burner or something, um, and then you've got the, you know, the end of the night if if it's been going all day, then after doing a, a grueling seventeen hour days, you've got to pass it, uh, and then. Obviously, getting rid of the waste, but what we're doing here now is is. I, I made a two-day stock over Christmas salad. Yeah, yeah I feel the pain. I'm, I won't be doing that again yeah, anytime but, soon. But the gravy was very good. I must admit, see, it was ab- worth absolutely. it. Absolutely, no, it really is, and and truly, you know, you can where you think of it, from the moment you walk into a restaurant to uh, just before your dessert, stock could go in anywhere. You know, any single one of those courses, you could have stock in it. So it's it's a massive fundamental. Uh, ingredient in any kitchen so when we're making stocks for three-star michelin stock uh, chefs if it's not right you know yeah. you're going to know about it and yeah. that's again that's the pressure that we all put on ourselves here because you know it's it's we, we make it the same way as any industry would make it and that's why chefs uh, truly love uh, true foods is because we don't do anything different where um, you know, we don't have any additives or salt or anything like that. It's just made on a, on a bigger scale. Um, and it's as good as what they would make and what they yeah, need absolutely. for their products. And, and better most of the time. Yeah. You know, I've, I've part of my position, I go and present into uh, these massive kitchens, three-star Michelin, and, and they sort of look at you and go, why, why would I want to buy your stock? And then they try it and go, I understand that. <laughs> um, and, you know, there was a, there was a three, three-star Michelin kitchen that we went to and, and they ended up redesigning their kitchen and they took out all stock-making facilities. They gained an extra section. You're almost gaining extra member staff because you haven't got that member of staff that's caring for the stock throughout the day. So they, they, they reap the, re- the benefits straight away. Um, and it was uh, just a... You know, really good for them to to take that stress almost out, and and, and for, for for them, they they get a more consistent product. And so, by you moving here five and a bit years ago, I take it Helen and the children are much happier because you you you're not doing the grueling hours, are you? No, as you were far from it. Which was it was one of them. It was a it was a massive decision. Um, so I met Mitch Mitchell. Mitch is. Uh, uh, the, the owner, uh, the founder of True Foods. Um, so I met Mitch because he um, he came over to Northcote, um, 
sort of having a, a conversation with him and he was saying he was looking for someone to to join True Foods to, to help uh, take the, the company forward, to, to be head of innovation. Um, so it was one of those that I, I didn't really think anything of it and it must have been one of those long, grueling days. And I remember going home at one o'clock in the morning and, and Helen used to just grunt to me and sort of ask how my day was, but didn't really care because it was one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And I was just like, do you fancy Yorkshire? And she was just like, shut up. Talk Moving about it. again, yeah, talk, it, yeah, no, talk about it tomorrow. So we did and sort of asked him the question um, to Mitch, like, well, tell me more about the position because everybody knows about the stock side of it, but there's, there's way more to True Foods than just making stock. We make so many other different things. So it was that conversation with Mitch and actually, you know, meeting like-minded people was phenomenal because the man's just an inspiration to all of us. Yeah. You can tell by the amount of long stairs here. Uh, and it's family run, you know, so you've got uh, Mitch, Jack, uh, his wife, and then Simon, the son, the three of them are all here. Uh, so a wonderful family run company that, you know, you're just not, it's not all about just figures it's about quality um so actually meeting mitch was a massive light bulb moment for me uh and then he basically said you know it's a, it's a monday to friday uh position and it was uh, eight till five i mean that's that's like a normal job Alan. what's just, going on it's just bonkers and and that I, I sort of almost i struggled with it to start off with when i first joined true foods i, I mentally struggled with doing less hours because, of course, because, because you've been you, doing it for so many years. These you're drilled yeah. to do, you know, and it is almost addictive. You get used to doing 17 whatever hours you do in a day. So when I was finishing at five o'clock, I'd end up going into the office and go, "What do you need? What do you want?" And, and I remember Jack was saying to me, "She's like, just go home, chef." And I was just like, "No, <laughs> it's five o'clock. What do you need?" And she's like, "Go home." I was like, "Oh." So like, it took it took a little bit of time to actually truly be at one be comfortable with having a personal life which sounds mental but it was just where I was um but as you said you know you've been conditioned to work in all these unsocial yeah. hours for so many years yeah, exactly and then actually having a, a personal life and 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 now being able to go home and and uh have dinner with my family you know to actually sit down and the four of us have dinner together it was you know that's that's unheard of for someone in in kitchens you just can't do that unless it's your day off and you might only get one day off a week and stuff but to be able to do that all the time is, is you know, it's the, it's the dream, isn't it? So having taken a foot off the gas and you're doing lovely Monday to Friday, eight to five, that's not always the case now, now Alid, because what is Chef's Table all about? Because you're now, what? how many courses is it? Is it 11 courses? <laughs> We're actually, the current menu is up to about 17 oh in, in total. <laughs> Whose idea was this? Because you're supposed to not be doing these unsociable hours anymore. So it was, it was the brainchild of, of, of Mitch and myself. So we actually went over to Barcelona on business because we were... Um, as you do. As you do. So it's a wonderful, again, perk to, to have. We were over in Barcelona and you go to the La Boqueria like every, everybody should. Um, so we were having a beer there and we, we we're talking about you know ideas of what we could have and, and Mitch learned that uh, Claude Bozzi from Babendum was moving from Hibiscus to go over to Babendum and he's like oh, I wonder what he's doing with his um, his Electrolux room his little private dining room so very surreal early doors into my into my job um, Mitch was on the phone walking down La Boqueria to Claude Bozzi as you do um, and striking a deal asking what he was going to do with his private dining room and um, the deal was done and Mitch and I were down in London the following week, uh, bringing up what we know now as the chef table, uh, the actual table itself, the extractor fan, an oven, a blast chiller, a backpack machine from one of the most prestigious London restaurants yeah. there ever was up to its new home in Yorkshire. So we had a wonderful presentation table. And then the idea was generally to to have somewhere to present to when we get these megastar chefs come in to... Because it it's just like a very... 
I mean, it's the highest end test kitchen I've mm. ever seen. It's amazing. It's a it's a you know it's a wonderful place to mm. to be in because it's very inspirational. The room is um, sort of Mitch calls it the heartbeat of the company because most things start in that room. You know, we've got freeze dryers, you know, vacuum chambers, all sorts of crazy bits of kit that chefs could only dream about working with. Um, and we saw, we came up with the idea of having the table to present to you know, multi mission star chefs that come for tasting sessions or, or you know people from different companies. But we thought one weekend, Mitch and I thought, oh, okay, why, why don't we do a, a dinner for loved ones? Um, and we had wives and partners that came um, for dinner. Yeah. We did a little taste of menu for them. I can't it was like five or six courses to start off with. And we buzzed off it. It was amazing. It was just you know, dipping your toes back into the industry again. Um, and then we opened it. We did another one for, for ladies of the office. You know, so we had a table of five again the following month or something, which was amazing. And then we invited some, some local uh, people from uh, Yorkshire Magazine as well, Yorkshire Life Magazine. And they were just like, guys, you need to open. This is so different. This is, you need to actually sell this to the public. And we were like, yeah, okay. It's one of those, I would say, it's one of those battles of, you know, you're trying to step away from the grueling craziness. Yeah. But it is on our terms where what Mitch gives us is the freedom to innovate, which and is... And also control. It's just like nothing that I've ever worked in before where a lot of kitchens are restricted by so many financial restrictions, staffing restrictions, stuff. Mitch just gives us complete freedom to, to um, just cook amazing food. Um, so we opened up to paying public to, to, you know, three years ago, I think it was now, where um, people were, were booking in and, and we had uh, Elaine Lem from Yorkshire Post magazine, who's a well-regarded uh, journalist from the area, and she came in and she gave us five out of five for, for every criteria. So that put us straight away yeah. a bit more of a pedestal, uh, a bit more pressure to, to live up to, but as, as you well know, we, we all like pressure. Um, well, you, you certainly do more than, more than most, Alex, <laughs> yeah, to be honest. Yeah, so, so it was, that was a wonderful sort of thing to, to, to live up to that. Um, so then we were doing six covers at that point, and then we went to eight covers, and then we went to ten covers. Uh, so we're at 10, we've stayed at 10 because what we feel is that it's a genuinely, it's a small enough number um, to, to do what we do brilliantly. If, yeah. you know, if you start going to 10 or 20, it's not quite what, what we do at the chef's table. So, you know, for that, it was it was a perfect amount of, uh, perfect number. Um, and then, you know, we've been doing it for a couple of years and then we had the Giles Corrin review, which was a massive game changer for us. So Giles, obviously, writer for the for the Times, um, well regarded. And I believe he's only given three 10 out of 10s in his 25-year career and we were one of them. Yeah. Uh, so for that, it, it massively sort of... Well, it just blew up after that, didn't it? Huge. And, and <laughs> it... It's phenomenal. I get goose pimples every time I say that because it's just bonkers. Um, I, I love the fact, you know, we, we got there and, and, and what we've done as a team is, is amazing because we've got a wonderful team here um, that have all come to build what we, the direction we want it to go in. And we've got different styles of chefs. Um, there's four or five different chefs in total, but only two or three of us will cook on the night. So you've got lots of different um, style of people to come in and do a, a, a chef table menu. Um but yeah, so to get that from Giles, suddenly, you know, it was going from the bread and butter might have been Yorkshire people um, from Leeds to Newcastle might have been come for dinner. But now we've got, 
you know, people driving up from London or, or a lot of people coming from you know, Manchester way or something. And we had, a, we had a table recently that came over. Um, and I was like, oh, where are you from? They're like, oh, California. But we were coming over to see mum and dad, but we just made sure that we booked the table before we flew over. Wow. I was just like, that's ridiculous. You know, you've got really amazing restaurants in California. And you're coming to an industrial estate yeah. in Yorkshire. Which I love. It's like everything, <laughs> you know, you come into an industrial estate and as soon as you walk into the test kitchen, then, you know, it's everything's... You know, polished and shiny and, and, and amazing, but you're still in the kitchen. Yeah. And it's, for me, I think it's like nothing else in the UK where there's a lot of chef tables. Um, but yeah, but of... this is different because it's 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 a long night, Yeah, but it's an intimate Absolutely. evening. Yeah. And there's great conversations to be had all the way through yeah. each course. Yeah, and what I love is you can truly get the answer straight away where you might go to a normal restaurant and say, oh, tell me about the beef and, you know, the service staff will oh, go and ask the chef if they don't quite know. And, you know, it's almost that robotic answer that the chef might have given to them. So you can't really get more in-depth answer. But for us, the, the people can ask absolutely anything they yeah. want, whenever they want. And, you know, it's a better evening when they do. Like, yeah. Nobody wants to sit there in silence, do you? And it's, so being, it's being prepped centimetres from your yeah, face. everything's cooked fresh in front of them. So yeah. everything is literally cooked in front of you. So you've almost got that cook school sort of learning aspect to it. And the amount of questions we get might not even be about the food we're cooking either. It might just be completely random. So tell me about roast potatoes. How do you do the, the best roast potatoes? It's got nothing to do with what you're cooking, but the, because they're in that sort of almost five-hour experience that we have, they can always feel like they can ask you whatever you want. So, yeah, Chef Table um, is giving us everything that we might have missed from the craziness um, of, the, of the wonderful career that I've gone through. So Chef Table gives... You know, me personally, um, everything that I might miss, uh, everything uh, I want, and what Mitch has very amazingly done is given us the platform to, to cook creatively and, and have fun, yeah. which, which is what we really promote as a team. Um, it's not about an atmosphere. It's not about being negative or anything like that. It's about promoting each other, looking at you know different skill setters, different uh, experiences from, from all the team and, and come up with a creative menu and, and you know, giving... Uh, uh, I guess the best experience we possibly can. And also, if you're lucky, you may get asked to help with uh, the prep of the dessert, like I did, and it put me under a lot of pressure. <laughs> but I, hopefully, I came through for you, Alan. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Alan Williams, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolute joy. Thank you, man. Thank you. And another episode is done. Oh, the determination of Chef Alad there. Um, brilliant chat. Thank you so much for inviting us over to Yorkshire and having a sit down with a cup of tea and talking about food and chefs and determination. Um, so that's it for the trilogy of chefs for now. Uh, for now, I say, because there are some food-related guests coming up in the future. Mm, I can't say yet. Um, and another thing that I can't say, it's so annoying, isn't it? But um, are you excited about festivals this year? you plan on going to any? Well, look, all I can say for now is keep an eye on the lineups. Mm. Your favourite podcast, that, that's us, uh, may be around a few can't say anything i'm sworn to secrecy anyway they'll kill me um but if you add podcasts and you fancy 
if you're at podcasts, if you're at festivals and you fancy uh, sitting down and coming to see us, then I will let you know when I am allowed. I promise. It's a goodie. Um, uh, yeah, well, uh, episode 11, season 9 next week, shall we? Um, I'm going to record it this afternoon. Do you want to know who it is? Are you a fan of Doctor Who? You like Broadchurch? I'm going to sit down with the brilliant Arthur Darville. Um, It's been a long time coming. We've been talking about this for about a year. So we're finally going to do it. I'm really excited. He's a good, good guy. Um, uh, I managed to uh, work with him last year. So, uh, but we didn't spend half enough time uh, as we would have liked just because of uh, scheduling. But uh, I'm looking forward to sitting down this afternoon with him. So that's next week, season nine, episode 11, with the wonderful actor, musician, singer, composer, theatre maker, Arthur Darville. Yeah? Okay. Well, until next week. Thank you so much for downloading and subscribing and supporting us. If you would like to support us and you have found a few pound coins when you've been cleaning the sofa and you think, Do you know what? We get these podcasts free every week, rich, interesting guests, lovely conversations, me waffling on, you don't have to pay for that. Um, and you would like to support us. You know, whatever you can do is always great. Um, you go to patreon.com forward slash two shot pod. Over there, you get lots of extras, lots of videos, lots of new photos. Uh, we're doing weekly lens videos when we can, when we're out and about on the road, teasing who the guests are. You'll find out first who the guests are. Um, and also we'll be telling you what festivals will be at when we can breaking news over on Patreon, go and have a look, see if you fancy supporting and you can drop out when you want. If you can't afford one month, come back on people change their tears all the time, but all help is grateful. So thank you. But if you can't, that's okay. Maybe you can in a few months, but until then, Thank you again for downloading, subscribing, telling your friends, saying hello on social media. It's always welcome. Until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. <laughs>